tonight on Arena. We speak with Makara of the Belfast hip-hop trio Kneecap and new albums from Peter Gabriel, Kate Rusby and Dove Cameron up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The LA Times described them as a rap group whose balance between anti-establishment lyrics, explosive delivery, graphic humour and unrelenting charm is reminiscent of early Eminem. They were talking about Kneecap, the Belfast-based hip-hop trio who have exploded onto the gig circuit with their distinctive rapping Osquilaga. They have sold out gigs not just across Ireland but in the UK and the United States of America. The trio is made up of band members Mohara, Mowgli Bap and DJ Provi and I am delighted to have Mohara join me now from our studio in Belfast. Fáilte siúr ód, Mohara, gyrra maha gata svehaling an ocht. Gyrra maha gata svehaling an ocht. and Clár. That is definitely the best intro I think I've ever had. Well, there you go. Gyrra maha gata. Why who? Gyrra maha gata. Fáilte siúr ód. Anyway, let's stop complimenting each other and get on with things. Listen, I, I was thinking about the fact that, that that comparison to Eminem, it made me think about, you know, the United States and the East Coast, West Coast divide. The three of you have certainly got rid of any East-West divide in terms of the province of Ulster. Uh, explain who the three <laughs> members are and how you bring East and West together. Well, I mean, we are obviously Makara and Mowgli Bob. Uh, we're both from West Belfast. And then also we have DJ Provy, who's from Derry. You know, so obviously we all grew up, we sort of spoke Irish, you know, with each other and we were like partying and that's how we met. And we just kind of thought that there was kind of this like, you know, Irish subculture um, that wasn't being very well represented or not being represented at all. But, you know, at the very, yeah, we come from a very serious place, as I'm sure you know, Sean. And to be honest, uh, 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 we're about bridging divides as well. We're obviously unapologetically ourselves, but... You know, we're working class people before we're anything else, you know? Well, that was the other East-West divide I thought it might be interesting to talk about, (laughs) (laughs) which is the East-Belfast-West Belfast divide. And I'm very interested in in a happening uh, on uh, Sandy Row with some members of what would essentially be people from East-Belfast and probably what might be considered a community from the other side of the divide. Tell me about that moment and um, making some rapping friends with some young loyalists. (laughs) Well, I mean, this was uh, one, of, one of our sort of uh, videographers and stuff. Um, obviously, he does a lot of freelance stuff as well. And he was working with um, uh, sort of this documentarian and he was sort of coming down to, you know, for the 12th marches and stuff. So uh, Mowgli Bap was like, you know what, I'll take you up. I'll take you up for a walk so you know where you're going and stuff. So the two of them went up to watch the marches and um, a group of loyalist lads started sort of gathering. And I think Mowgli wasn't too sure what was going to happen, but... Um, I think he was instantly calmed by um, Charta being sang by them. So they sang our first song, C-E-A-R-T-A. And I think it was a, a bit of a shock at the time, but also they said they had a few swigs of Buckfast. And it just goes to show that, like, you know, online isn't real life, you know? Like, people mm. think that we're, like, div- like, we're divisive or, like, that people in East Belfast could never, like, you know, a band because they rap in Irish or whatever. I mean, bear in mind, we said that we were there. We were told that we were stoking, like, the fire and stuff of, of divisiveness by doing a mural in West Belfast with a police jeep on fire. I feel if you go to East Belfast, they would probably agree with that message also. <laughs> 
And and that that song, Carta, uh, was in and around the time of the Irish Language Act. Uh, uh, talk to us about the content of that song and what Carta, what rights a veto igairon fui. Well, I mean, we we always like to play on words, you know, and we like to you know let people have emotional reactions without really actually understanding the the content, you know. But if you listen deeply, the character what we're talking about is the right to go out and party and enjoy ourselves. But obviously, it was coming at the time of the Irish Language Act, a right that was, you know, agreed in 2007 that um, was constantly vetoed and constantly put off. And it was obviously something we were like involved in that community and we thought it was well over time. But also, it was a double entendre. It was the play on words mm. of, we want the right to just more than just speak our language, we want to be able to party in our language also. And how politicised is the language in in that uh, in that respect? Uh, would you say? I mean, I feel like a lot of people say that we are speaking the language in order to be political, and that we have politicised it. But I, I mean, if you want to go back far enough, um, back to the penal laws when the language itself was outlawed, I feel like it was made political. Way before we released mm. any music, anyway, you know, and there we, those... we never chose to make the language political. It's a language that we live our day to day life in. You know, it's just how we survive. This is the language we socialize in, and you know, also like a lot of the counter arguments for an Irish language act was things like oh, there's more Polish speakers in Ireland that there than that, than there is Irish speakers. But they say that as if that's something to be proud of. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? That the Irish language was almost. Push the extinction, you know. And there was a time, in fact, when it was the Protestant community who fought, it could be argued, to save the Irish language. Uh, and, and in fact, it was sometimes the Catholic community and the leaders of the Catholic community, I'm going back to the time of the United Irishmen, obviously, who who were saying, you know, you might be better off just dropping the Irish and getting on with the English. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, of course, it was people from all backgrounds that, you know, sort of, did what they can to keep the language mm. alive. But I, I mean, I, obviously there was big people like, you know, like Wolf Tone and all those sort of yeah. people who really, really helped. But I mean, at the very, very core of it, it's people in the west of Ireland who kept the language alive. You know, people in the Gaeltacht and Connemara, Gidor, they're the real heroes of this story, you know, because without them, our songs, our stories and our, you know, thousands of year old language would be gone if it wasn't for those actual people in those areas, you know. So okay. we can credit everyone for it, but yeah. it's... To the course, it's these people. Agus Cor Ireland to Fein the Chuj Gaelige. Dolan Mishim the Chuj Gaelige or Bonscon Slevigiv at the primary school in Ballymurphy, um, and then Hume Ray Hon Gaelige Yanu or College Farsta in Ehrhavel Farsta, and Susan and Skull Gaelig is most a cheer, and that's the thirty-two counties that yeah. we have the biggest secondary Irish school. Yeah, so that was Belfast. that was that was where you, you learned it. You refer to yourself as Good Friday Agreement babies, and I'm I'm sure there must be a, a rap in there somewhere that has to start with G Fabs in in that particular <laughs> in that particular respect. What what do you think? You know, your generation are obviously coming post troubles. Good Friday Agreement yep. babies. How how has yep. that allowed you to approach? You know, the very difficult subject of the troubles, which for many people still holds huge pain across all communities. Of course. Yeah, of course. It's very still a very sensitive subject um to a lot of people. But as I said at the start, like we do come from a place that's so serious that I feel like we're we're not given 
either community enough credit that, like that we can't take a joke you know <laughs> do you know what I mean like we, I know people that obviously have been affected and stuff and I understand that the people can be quite triggered by it but I mean it, it's a very Irish thing to do if you didn't laugh you'd cry after yeah. 800 years of hardship you know we've learned to be able to joke about these things and like that's why we have such a great relationship with death and how we deal with that you know like so I feel like it's just it's been so serious here for so long we wanted to play up to that and nobody's uh, uh, like nobody's out of bounds of a good slagging you know especially people from you know uh, uh, the Republican community as well we we don't shy away from slagging them people you know yeah everyone deserves to be laughed at a few times you know yeah everybody's up for grabs in the, in the songs <laughs> exactly um, it, it, it's the thing there's, there's a new album on the way and I'll talk to you a little bit about it in a second but I wonder if you listen to uh, better way to live is one of the tracks on that new album is it Makara? It is indeed, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the the, the wee single we've just released there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Graham Chatton of uh, DC Fontaines uh, is uh, Fontaines DC is part of is part of this particular uh, performance. How did that meeting strike up? Um, see, I, I suppose Ireland is a small it's a small place. Do you know what I mean? It's a small world. Ireland's even smaller, and the music industry is even smaller. <laughs> so we were just sort of friends of friends, and we got to know each other, and you know we'd. Um, I got I got a few pints into him one day, and we convinced him to do a tune. And once he had a conv- or once he had agreed to it, we weren't going to let it go. No, so really. we got him, and we got Tom from the Fontaines also drumming on it, and also we had Andy Nicholson, the the original bass player from the Arctic Monkeys. So we, we had a great. It was a very old school way of doing tracks as well. We were all in the studio at the same time. You don't have to do that nowadays. You know, you can just <laughs> send it away. They can go to the nearest studio. It felt really. It felt really organic and DIY, and it was a great experience, especially to have a superstar like Green on it, you know. Yeah, well, okay, let's let's have a listen to a little bit of Better Way to Live. Flavour there of Better Way to Live featuring the voice of Graham Chatton of Fontaine's DC and of course he was uh, rapping and singing alongside their kneecap and Mohara of kneecap Tosha Lomanocht Aaron Glar and Tauron Shin Aaron Gidol she is you know Tauron Giran Varan gone Iris but Tauron there are serious things in there as well as the funny things Yeah I mean yeah, like, I mean, I, 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 we had the idea, can you have Jagiri, you know, or Aniyaru for do the, you know, grass stuff, Italian Cecile. Um, so the, the the boring, mundane, everyday tasks and mm. fainting pockets of joy. Mahe can do that, me. Yes, know? of course. Beautiful, uh, yeah. beautiful, beautiful moments that pass us by, you know, because we're not being very present. And Shinan and Shinan Fager. It's the ruts, the ritz, and it's the lads. It's all the lads at the bar, and you know, they 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 just drink away, and they're not enjoying what's going on around them. Yeah, because so you're making a serious point there um, about you know the drinking can be a kind of an anaesthetic as much as much as anything else. But it is interesting that it's set in a pub, and that everybody's there uh, having a good time. The concept of the new album is precisely that. The, the idea of kind yeah. of lads in a pub having a chat and breaking into song every so often. Yeah, pr- so pretty much that, yeah. So the whole idea is that, you know, you see you see it in the music video, some of them will be sitting at almost, you know, you know, uh, not present at all, having a drink, and, th- and all of a sudden there'll be a flip, 
and they'll be sitting with a meditation bowl or something. Do you know, we're talking about like breaking out of these, breaking out of these wee sort of struggles of everyday life, you know, that people do. And obviously the idea for the album was you're coming into Kneecap's world, which is the ruts. So you're coming in and it's like, you know, as you said, you, you, you know, all the different aspects of a night out, you know, mm. Uh, every day people you meet in the toilet you go outside and there's people out the front having a smoke and then in the corner someone will break into song as as, as us Irish tend to do you know um, the pub seems to be a great place for things to happen for you <laughs> tell me about the session with <laughs> Michael Fassbender and this in and around uh, the, the, the current I think it's a kind of a f- half fact half fiction maybe a lot of fiction uh, biopic <laughs> that's happening or has happened yeah so yeah, we basically we'd have seven weeks of filming, and I think you're talking about the story of would that be DJ Provy? Yes, yeah. Um, throwing up uh, after one too many um, espressos, we'll call them, <laughs> um, and turning around to see um, a A-list celebrity standing over the top of him. So I think he's had finer moments in his life. But um, yeah, so we were basically the director called Rich Papiot came to us. Um, a few years back instead of an idea for a film obviously as you said there's loosely based on the characters of kneecap and as well as true there's true elements mm. to it you know there's a lot of real stuff that happened to us but also a lot of it can be you know showbiz baby yeah well you, but, but uh, it, so he, he, explain explain the character that uh, michael fassbender is playing and the character that simone kirby is playing and how that fits into the real life the the the, the three of you mogli bop yourself makara and of course dj provi I worry how much I'm allowed to give away at this point now, to be honest, Sean. All right. Well, give as much away as oh, you I'm think sure. you'd be allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, they, they well, I'll say this, them two play a fictional fictional characters. They're not they're not real characters in, in the story of Kneecap. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, do you know what? You'll just have to wait till it's out. I'm afraid right. of saying too much here now that I'm on my own and, you know, sinking myself when I don't have to, if I'm being honest with you, Sean. But it'll be out next year. Um, it's a biopic. It's loosely based on the story of Kneecap and it's uh, a dark comedy that I'm sure it's going to say mm. all the family, but I don't think all the family's going to enjoy it. <laughs> Todd T it was who produced the, the new album. I think it's interesting, given the amount of Gaelica that there is across all the songs, because it really does move in and out of English and Irish with great ease and, you know, without any difficulty at all. How have you found that in terms of performing to UK audiences, uh, performing to audiences in the US? In fact, performing, performing to audiences worldwide, the use of what yeah. is a, essentially a minority language. A hundred percent. I feel like what like the the a lot of the comments we got at the very start was, uh, geez, you haven't made it very easy on yourself, lads, rapping in a language that not many not many people speak these days. And in on paper that should be true, but I feel like it ha- it hasn't closed doors at all. It has actually opened doors that we rap in a minority language that not many people speak. There's a lot of like you know music has and you know it's 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 unique to people you know it's it's interesting people aren't people haven't heard a lot of people haven't heard the Irish language mm. let alone rapping in Irish you know and but like I mean we always mention this in, in other interviews when this kind of question comes up that like you have bands now you know is that music has changed so much now you know and how we consume music is completely changed like if you look at bands like BTS and their Korean band but sell out two nights in Wembley in London I'm gonna guess that uh, most people at the gig probably don't speak Korean, mm. you know. So the way we consume music now is com- completely different. And yeah, the Irish language has opened more doors than it's closed. 
And the feeling of having Irish rap, Irish language rap shouted back up at you, oh, squealing, it must be great. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange feeling, all right. I mean, we had the story there recently when we were in America. This young woman up the front was screaming every word. I was like, whoa, fair play to her. She must be like, you know, over here in university from the Gale Talk or whatever. And um, she didn't speak a word of Irish. She just knew everything <laughs> phonetically. There she you knew go. every word phonetically because we went up there after and we were like, well, like an Irish Jim Tattoo and all blah, blah. She was like, sorry, I actually don't speak a word. I was like, you fooled me. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Listen, Gormil Mahagut Asvah Gwinganok, Mokara, August Gunairi Liv Leshon, Leshon Skanon, Norahogan Shemak, August Leshon Gernin Yua. Gormil Mahagakara. Shin Mokhara, Belfast from the Belfast rap group Kneecap and Kneecap will be playing in the Olympia in Dublin on December the 12th and 13th the Millennium Forum in Derry on December the 14th Ulster Hall in Belfast on December the 21st and Cork City Hall on December the 29th so they're going to be busy over the Christmas period for sure you can find out full details about their concerts on their website kneecap.ie After almost a century of being overshadowed by her collaborator and friend, the poet W.B. Yeats, the spotlight is now firmly on Lady Augusta Gregory. Earlier this year, RTE broadcast a two-part documentary about the writer and co-founder of the Abbey Theatre, and the Abbey itself has announced The Gregory Project, a year-long celebration of her legacy, which will run at the theatre throughout 2024. A collection of Gregory's early writings, including her out-of-print short stories, has just been published in a collection edited by James Pethica and Colin Smythe. And over the coming weeks, RTE Culture will present five of these early stories, Lady Gregory's only known efforts at short fiction. Delighted to be joined this evening by James Pethica to tell us more about these stories. I'll start, James, with, with your own interest, in fact, in Lady Gregory. Where and how did that begin? I began as a graduate student when I was uh, intending to write a doctorate on Yeats. And Yeats is a massive field, the poetry, the plays, those voluminous prose writings, his occult work, and so many creative involvements. But Lady Gregory seemed to be present to a greater or lesser degree across so much of his work and life. And I gradually found her more and more compelling, this woman of energy, determination, pragmatism, very much Sancho Panza to his Don Quixote, I think. And um, when I encountered first experience of being reading in her archive, which is a massive archive in New York, she saved almost every piece of paper. It was a Pandora's box mm. that just changed the shape of so many things for me. There's a wonderful irony in the fact that you started off um, exploring Yeats as a potential uh, subject for study but were pulled towards Lady Gregory. I suppose one could argue that Lady Gregory has suffered in the opposite direction all too often, where it was Yeats who was seen as the great statesman, the great writer, and, and the he's always mentioned in connection with the founding, obviously, of the Abbey Theatre as well. Lady Gregory was a vital part of that, and some would argue even a vital part of Yeats's dramatic writings. Absolutely. She collaborated with him on every play he wrote for a decade, uh, almost all his folklore writings and so much more. Absolutely. Uh, that friendship, that long literary partnership have uh, remained the defining factor. And Yeats himself, in his autobiography, uh, he portrays her as, as not being creative to begin with. Uh, he says, during these first years, Lady Gregory was a friend and a hostess, a centre of peace, 
but neither she nor we thought her a possible creator. And yes, that's a version of events that irritated her, of course, and it certainly uh, distorts things. Yeah, I well, there's no question that it distorts things and that it would have irritated her because the stories that we're talking about th- this evening existed well ahead of the the Irish literary revival and the and, and the Abbey Theatre movement. This is I, I know it was starting at this point, but we're we're talking about writings from Lady Gregory at the end of the 19th century. Yes, and uh, she had been actively seeking a creative outlet long before she meets Yeats and you know meets him at Cool uh, the first time in uh, summer eighteen ninety six. She published a variety of work, and the two volumes I put out uh, bring that back to view: travel articles, political pamphlets, political journalism, and a lot of material she didn't publish at the time, and early memoir, poems, and things like that. And she was well known enough by the mid-1880s as somebody who had ambitions, Oscar Wilde, when he was editing his journal The Woman's World, uh, asked her in 1887 to write for him. And the letter says, you know, praising her clever pen. So it was clear enough. Um, but but these stories are in many ways sort of the, uh, the, the crown jewels mm. of this uh, material. And she wrote these stories, at least three of the five that uh, we would be getting on the RTE Culture website. She wrote, uh, she wrote them under the pseudonym of... Angus Gray, um, not unusual, I suppose, for a woman to use a, a male pseudonym. But there's more to it than that, I think, in this case, isn't there? Uh, she never put anything uh, in a diary or letters about why she chose that pseudonym. But I think the first port of call would have to be that she's echoing the title of Charlotte Bronte's novel, Agnes Gray. And, and if that's the case... That novel, after all, is very much about the oppressive conditions for women, women of that time. And knowing Lady Gregory, uh, I'd lay money. She was aware that uh, the Brontes had Irish roots. Charlotte's father, Patrick Bronte, was originally, his name was Brunty, uh, an anglicization of O'Pronte, uh, uh, was from County Down. So... He's disguising his roots. You know, Bronte hides this this Irish Irish roots. As to it being a male pseudonym, that's an interesting question. Is is she adopting that for fear that the work won't be accepted, or is it actually decisively male and assertive? Hard to say. Mm. Yeah, I suppose you could argue the point either way. And she could have said Augustus Gray as well. It would have been another uh, perfectly acceptable pseudonym. There are other reasons too. Her uh, terrible handwriting, she signed herself Augusta Gregory and would receive letters, there are many that survive, addressed back to Angus Gregory. So there's probably a private joke there too. Yeah, a little bit of something going on. However, the the Angus Gray stories then, really one of the the aspects that brings them all together is this idea of the English or the Anglo-Irish outsider and their position within Irish society. And it's not difficult to think of, no matter how fictional these works may be, this echoes Lady Gregory's own experience. Absolutely. And that pseudonym perhaps uh, clues us into that already. Is she trying to hide something about her own identity here? So these stories, they're uh, written by her in a a massively fast-changing island, the land war, you know, 1880, 1882, it's, it's its most intense. Uh, this young woman uh, has married uh, an elderly Irish landlord expecting a secure, settled life. 
and the land war threatens everything. Uh, is this state uh, state going to be sold? Uh, you know, the rent roll is dropping. She returns to Ireland in late 1882, uh, having been away in London and, and Europe, uh, as the Gregory spent much of their time away, and company, is accompanied by armed guards when she visits her childhood home. So even that early, she's registering this incredible change and wondering what's going to happen politically and what's going to happen to her as the wife of a landlord, Chatelaine of an estate, and also as, as a woman. And the 1880s, I think this this, this period um, when the Home Rule Bills, you know, the 1886 Home Rule, Rule, Rule Bill is put in, uh, trying to decide where her loyalties lie. And stories absolutely enact this question. Uh, the three Angus Gray stories, the central characters, all women, who two of them are English, or one has come in. This is um, uh, a, a gentleman, which is mm. already out on the website, Lady Norris, a woman with you know stature. And she comes into her raw Irish home, and it's the typical set of uh, cultural prejudices. The outsider who sees her... Uh, her tenants and her servants as raw and wild, whereas she is orderly and cultivated. So st stage Irish colonial mm. era stereotypes. And in that story, his decency and his humanity gradually win her over. Uh, small details, a, a girl gets pregnant on the estate and he's the only one who will uh, go and help her despite that massive stigma of the time. And at the end, she pleads with him to stay and he won't. And she wants to honour him and um, put up a gravestone on his burial site and discovers that he's of this noble lineage, King of Burren. Yeah. So on the face of it, this is a story about an outsider, somebody who sides with English values, learning more about Irish culture and having their prejudices overcome. Now, that story, there's, there's I think, an element of wish fulfilment in mm. it, of course. Uh, but it's at its best because I think Lady Gregory recognizes the the level of, of wish fulfillment. And the story, uh, O'Loughlin, the, the gardener, the old man who, who she comes to respect, is repeatedly calling attention to the real divisions between them. Uh, your ladyship is strange to the ways of the country. He's constantly highlighting that she doesn't really understand and when she honors him at the end, uh, in, in many ways, uh, this is about you know, praising her own perspicacity. Um, and he's dead. Uh, it's rather, you know, yeah. like the minstrel boy, you know, she's aestheticizing something that's no longer a threat to her power. And what about her treatment of the, the, the Irish characters within a gentleman in particular, but in the other stories as well? I'm wondering two things about that. How stage Irish are they, number one? And has she started to develop her um, Kiltartan dialect and that kind of way of speaking that she gave to her characters later on? Uh, I'll address the language first. Uh, absolutely. And maybe that's the great surprise uh, in these stories uh, the Kiltartan speech, which uh, she described that, defined that as the translated sentences of people who think in Irish and are using the syntactical constructions of Irish, but speak in English. And uh, the last of the stories, the Angus Gray stories, uh, not yet uh, up on the website, Pila Astor, contains Irish words. 
Um, she made her first effort to learn Irish in 1887, again, way before her involvement with the Gaelic League and meeting Douglas Hyde. Um, so she, she's being attentive to mm. uh, the, the way people speak and her letters in, in the late 1880s back to London friends, you know, delightedly reporting this cultural singularity, this, this distinctive way of speaking, which she's, she's falling in love with. Uh, her allegiances are ever more uh, evolving towards seeing herself as completely Irish. Yeah, and even that title, Peeler Astor, of course, Astor mean an Irish word, or uh, two Irish words, in fact. It's Astor, even though she puts it, she conflates it into one word um, uh, for, you know, my love or, or, or darling or whatever way you would want to translate that. I wondered about what kind of anxieties you had, or she had, I beg your pardon, um, at the time. You know, you talked about this idea of her with the with the older husband, the older landlord husband, and he's then gone and, and her anxieties around I suppose, apart from anything else, her physical situation, could she maintain that house and would she be allowed to maintain that house? Uh, after after she's widowed, um, that's a complicated question because uh, the, the estate was promised already will to her son who hadn't yet reached his age of majority. And indeed, uh, we think of Lady Gregory as being the Chatelaine of Cool. In, in some respects, that's not the case at all. It was always her son's, and she was, you know, living there on a jointure. Uh, so, so that that's that's a you know, a, a, in many ways, a later personal and political question. One final question, uh, which I think is important to all of the stories um, that we're talking about here, uh, it's this idea of the heart secret, James. It's it, it's this uh, something inside that the 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 person that the narrator or the protagonist of the story has to deal with the battle between the heart and the head. Absolutely. Um, a long history with this. Uh, it plays out in Peeler Store, where a woman has uh, fallen in love with a, an Irish policeman. She's English and, and she leaves him. It breaks his heart. It's there in the first of the stories she wrote, uh, a Lily Astor, already up on the website, in which a titled lady, she's married, falls in love with a man and follows propriety sends him away, doesn't want to risk her reputation and, and, and so on, but is sad for the rest of her life, and mm. puts flowers on his grave every year. Now, this presumably, whatever else it does, relates to Lady Gregory's own experience. She marries a man 36, old, 36 years older than her. Uh, she was 27. He, he was about to be 64. And she had an, an affair in the second and third year of her marriage with the poet, traveller and anti-imperialist Wilfred Blunt and ended that affair for fear of discovery, uh, out of remorse, moral concern and so on. And that was obviously an immense strain for her in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And in her writings at the time... Um, she wrote a memoir in 1883, and it's full of these stories of whether it is better for a woman to follow her heart or to be pragmatic. Her own own marriage was in many ways, I suppose you'd call it transactional. Um, she knew what she, she was getting out of it um, and, and what she was not likely to get. So that question of the harboured secret and the question of what's best for a woman, uh, it runs all the way mm. through these stories. James, thanks so much for speaking to us this evening. Um, you've certainly, I think, whetted our appetites to look at Lady Gregory in a different way than Yeats might have wanted us to look at her, certainly early on. Thanks for being with us this evening.
Pleasure to be with you. And thanks very much to James Pethicke. And you can read all five of the Angus Gray stories that James has been telling us about, the writings of Lady Augusta Gregory, on the RTE website, rte.ie forward slash culture. Uh, Friday night, three album releases to review and it's the 1st of December. Would you believe there's a Christmas album in the mix? I can't believe myself. EO is the first album of original material for more than 20 years from the now 73-year-old former member of Genesis, Peter Gabriel. No Christmas songs on that one. Uh, American dark pop singer, former Disney actress Dove Cameron issues her debut studio album, Alchemical Volume 1. No Christmas songs on that one. And the Barnsley Nightingale, also known as folk singer Kate Rusby, is a Yuletide veteran. She releases her seventh Christmas album. And the one that we're going to talk about tonight is called Light Years. With me in studio, Sarah Hedeman and Simon Marr. Let's start with the return of um, Peter Gabriel. And in fact, we will just start straight away with the track to give us a little bit of music to listen to. This is Road to Joy. So many days in the throbbing of the darkness Been so many days I've been waiting for you Back in the world Waking up the road to joy Road to Joy, the title of that track from Peter Gabriel and the new album EO, which is uh, written as I Stroke O. It's a reference, um, you're starting for 10, Simon Marr. It's a <laughs> reference to what particular planetary object? I have no idea, uh, Zara, Zara Hederman <laughs> is going to get in on this one then. Yeah. It uh, is not only input, output, output, but it's also the name of a moon on Jupiter. Top there of that class no, there. But in, I suppose input, output, there's one of the songs where he actually sings in, you know, uh, there are things going in, things going, coming things, out. things coming in out, and I'm just in, in the mix. He, he really is looking at his mortality here at 73. He's, it's a big autumn album, isn't it? Oh, it is. And like for an album that he says himself, he started writing in 1996. So he's 73 now. So he was 46 when he started writing the album. And he said that the album itself has changed as he has mm. changed. And while that he was very worried, he said in his mid-60s, so 10 years ago, he was quite worried about his mortality. He now says that the completed album is a two fingers to mortality. Yeah, he so, so he says, I accept it, but I don't care. Yeah. And um, why did it take him so long, Zara, to, to get this album together? Well, it wasn't that he was idle yeah. at all. I mean, he Busy. had numerous uh, world tours that went on for about two, three years each. He also had albums come out that were reworking some of his old material. Mm. Um, and I guess there's the kind of thing as well, when he amassed as well over 130 songs for this, um, that was cut down to 23, which were recorded down again to 12. So I guess there was just, with Peter Gabriel as well, he's so innovative in the studio and he's so influential that you can only imagine that he really wanted everything in its right place with these songs and listening to it and even as well we have two mixes that he's given us yeah there's there's a bright mix a yes. bright side mix and a dark side mix mix now I listened to one or two of the songs yeah. in both mixes 
and I suppose it depends on the equipment you're listening on as much as anything else, doesn't it? Absolutely. Like Peter Gabriel audiophiles will get giddy with this. Now, yeah, I did listen yeah. to the two and the differences are very minor. Like some will just highlight certain details a bit more. Mm. Some will bring them to the fore. They don't in any way um, clash with one another. They don't compromise your listening. You don't, I don't feel anyway, I had a preference for either or mix. Um, I thought they worked really well. And I actually just thought, again, for his prowess as a producer, it was really interesting to hear what it was that was in the songs. The other thing that he's done here, which and you do know about this planetary object side of things, uh, <laughs> Simon Marr, he, he released singles throughout the year yeah. coinciding with the full moon. Well, yeah. You know, it, well, how it, hippie but, is that? Yeah, but it, it couldn't be any more Peter Gabriel if you tried. Like, you know, I think what happened was even though I'd heard a couple of the songs, a couple of the, 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 his full moon songs, I was a bit worried before I listened to the album for the first time because I kind of thought, oh no, we could slip back into Genesis in 1972. You know, this could be triple gatefold sleeve and it could be songs that go absolutely mm. nowhere. But I was going to say I was pleasantly surprised, but I was almost shocked by how immensely listenable but I just saw how good all of these tracks are and how good the sequence of them is. All right, let's have a listen to uh, another of the tracks a little bit further down the playlist on the first one that we listened to and this is called Olive Tree. The melting of the sun We're all banging our heads, or bouncing, <laughs> bouncing our heads as we listen to that. I'm a bit. Of, I was. I was debating whether to play Olive Tree or Anne Still because that there is an upside and yeah. bright feel to lots of tracks on the album. But there's also a more introspective and quieter feel to other tracks, uh, and, Simon. But that's something that Peter Gabriel has always been able mm. to do. Like, even if you go back to So, which is sort of mid-1980s, yeah. you know, your big tracks, your sledgehammers. But for every sledgehammer, there's always been an and still. And there's always been an, an area where it's like he will let you in. And definitely yeah. on tracks like and still, there's an access that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect listening to tracks like that. Yeah. And, and also there's another song on the album, uh, Playing for Time. His wife was was ill uh, and he and he stopped working to to care for her for that period. I think she's uh, survived that particular illness. And his mother died. In this all happened in I think twenty sixteen yeah. happened in the same same year. And there are times when he goes roaming about the house and he says, "Everything I look at is a memory of you." You want to be made of stone, not to be moved yeah. by some of the material. In every corner, memories form. I wandered around the house we where we used to live. Your presence everywhere. Yeah, made me yeah, uh, tear yeah. up listening oh, to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it um, beautiful kind of sentiment within it, and it's there in the music at times as well. Absolutely, and there's great range in this album. Like it's almost seventy minutes long, and it's such a blast to yeah. listen to. Yeah. And you don't have to listen to both. You know, you could listen to the bright side one day and the dark side maybe yeah, yeah. the next day, whatever mood you're in yeah. in yourself. And uh, I think we all heard. Um, Randy Newman all there on there in one of the songs. Who else did you hear, Kazara? Um, yeah, Randy Newman on Playing say, for Time. When I say I heard Randy Newman, sound, the sound of Randy yeah, Newman. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was also So Much, um, which reminded me quite a lot of the later output of, say, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Mm. Um, that was quite a, a poignant song as well, I felt. The Randy Newman song in particular, I thought, was quite uh, moving, Playing for Time. And also, uh, Peter Gabriel has also worked with him. But then you also have, you know, your Brian Eno Flair, um, who we worked yeah. with and did a lot of programming. And there is all these different influences, but at the core of it, this is Peter Gabriel. Um, and what's great as well, and we haven't even really touched on it, is how strong his voice sounds yeah. at 73 yeah. years old. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Stars from you, Zara. 
Uh, I thought this was brilliant. The Angel Gabriel. So it's four, and a, four out of five. The Angel Gabriel. <laughs> four <laughs> out good. of five. Well done, you. Yeah. What are you this saying, is, Simon? <laughs> I liked being how surprised I was by this. And this is a very solid four. And it would make me, if when he does his next world tour, it would absolutely make me want to go and see the gig as well. All right. Uh, an album called EO, I Stroke O, uh, the new Peter Gabriel album. Let's move on then to Dove Cameron. Uh, first part of a two-part debut album. This is called Alchemical Volume 1. Um, give us a little background on Dove Cameron, uh, actor who became a singer. There's a new route. <laughs> yeah, and to uh, make it even more kind of uh, cliched, a Disney Channel child star as well. So her contemporaries would be the likes of Olivia Rodrigo, Sabrina yeah. Carpenter. Um, Dove uh, Cameron, her career focused mostly on her acting up until about 2019. And all the while acting, she did also record songs for soundtracks and successfully so when she then focused on the debut stuff. She did all she needed to do from her label. She got awards for Best new artist she went viral on TikTok and on this album you know this is her debut to introduce us to what she sounds like mm. get an idea of who she is and after listening to all 22 minutes I have no idea who 22 minutes is. 8 songs is a kind of it's an extended EP is what it is. Oh, yeah. Let, let's have a listen to a song called Lethal Woman <laughs> Back production, sparse sound, yeah, very uh, subtle. Is, is subtle, exactly yes. what we're getting there. But I suppose the point with this that that that's um, Dove Cameron and Alchemical Volume One. I suppose the point here is Simon. You come from the Disney stable. The first thing you have to do is say, "Look, I'm not. I'm not a little Disney person anymore." I'm a lethal woman. She's working very hard at that image in this you, album. You, you get the feeling that she's working incredibly hard and whoever the people who are behind her, her Pushing people her hard. are working really, yeah. really hard. But they've sat down with a focus group and they've said, what do, we, what do we have to do in order to make this work? And unfortunately, I think, unfortunately for her, they've tried to fish in far too many ponds. Yeah. You know, rather than giving her, just because she has a decent voice, and it, with tracks like Boyfriend and her previous stuff, there was there's obviously a talent there. But yeah. I think this is just it's too sampley. Yeah, and there was a, there was a, a track for, uh, further down towards the end of the the track listing was a lovely cello, pizzicato cello going on underneath. There are some lovely arrangements there, and when it is paired back in some of those songs you do hear something that you think, well, we might hear more of that. Yeah, and they were actually the moments that I did in, enjoy, uh, I guess is a word you could say, a bit more like still. I really liked the production on that. There was I think some that's interesting, the song that yeah, had that, yeah. That was some, there were some interesting things there and again, it gives her more space to be the kind of central element of the song. Fragile Things as well was interesting. God's Game, which is a bit more dynamic and kind yeah. of after hours par- party kind of tone. It was good. It was fine. But like, I've heard Billie Eilish. I know. Yeah. Know what she sounds like, and I know how closely Dove Cameron has copied that. And for a debut, that's a terrible thing because she's not presenting herself as anything different or innovative. Are you expecting anything exciting in volume two of I, Alchemical, Simon? But see, you, you don't get many opportunities at this because she's got she the benefit of having yeah. the profile. But yeah, but even with a two-part first album, you yeah. really don't get too much and you've got to try and find some way. And between the Billie Eilish stuff and then there's one song that you just taken Lana Del Rey's Diet Mountain Dew and just re-sung it with some slightly different words. And you go, nobody will remember this. Yeah, mm. all right. Starts from you, Simon. I'm going to give it two. Two? Oh, I didn't think you were going to be that nasty. <laughs> and Zara, are you going to be even nastier? 
I, uh, I'm a two, but I actually was considering a one and a half, but there was in the sparser moments enough there that I enjoyed. Yeah. So I'll go two. Yeah, and we'll see if she can go sparse in, in volume two and maybe we'll be all be a little bit happier. Let's move on then to Kate Rusby, um, who, to say the very least, is the mistress of the Christmas or the master of the Christmas album, Simon. Oh, absolutely. When you think that this is Christmas album number seven, she's managed to get out a Christmas album about once every three years now. But it's not that that has in any way paused the amount of original mm. albums that she puts out because this is her 22nd album. But she she is beloved for all of this stuff and she says herself that she just loves Christmas and she loves to put her own slant on a Christmas yeah. song and that's why she says she intends to do this forever. Alright, there you go. Well, let's have a listen to a track called The Moon Shines Bright. I suppose more of a winter song this than a Christmas song you could argue uh, Alison Krauss and Ron Block part of this. There we go, a little flavour of The Moon Shines Back from Kate Rusby and her Christmas Stroke um, winter album called Light Years. When this album started off, um, Zara, mm-hmm. there, there's a brass band at the beginning and she has this Northern English accent and I thought, oh, are we in, are we in the Unthanks Sisters? Are we in that territory? But I was uh, disabused of that fairly quickly. It changes into something much less interesting all too quickly. Yeah, it does. Now, that, actually, that song we heard there, The Moon Not Shines the worst, Bright, yeah is the highlight for it because it does offer a bit of a tonal difference and it does some interesting things and it's nice that Alison Krauss and Ron Block are there because Kate Rusby is a big fan of theirs. When I was listening to this album, I found it very, very difficult for a number of reasons and I'm by no means a Scrooge. I will listen to Wham! Last Christmas in July. I love it. Um, But here I just felt there was a couple of issues. One, there are songs here that are four and a half minutes, five minutes long Absolutely no need for that. Very superfluous stuff going on, I felt, in some of the songs. Could be could be a nice tight three minutes oh, and absolutely. the point to be made. The other thing that I felt was quite uh, hindering to my enjoyment was the production level, I felt, was very flat and very dated. Right. And, you know, I have Christmas songs that I'm really familiar with and I did sing along to because of my familiarity, but didn't do much to excite me so to get my Christmas tree So you didn't like the, the new version of um, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, which is arrest these merry gentlemen and send tidings to Constable Joy. <laughs> You, no. you didn't. You didn't get much out of that one, Zara. I didn't. No, <laughs> I no. thought you might not okay. Um, what are you saying overall as you give us your stars on this on Kate Rusby and Look, Light Years? It, it needs kind of Dove Cameron level of production, I think, throwing at some of those tracks, and then we get something really, uh, really, oh, no, like really, the, really, the little kicking. brass band at the beginning. <laughs> but I think, in fairness, out of the seven Christmas albums, she could probably put together one very decent Christmas album because she's got a good vocal. You know, some of the arrangements are nice, but it's just there's just not enough here. Two and a half out of five. All right, and she has one track. And this called I'm getting nothing for Christmas. I'm worried about the stars that you might be getting ahead of Christmas. Uh, what did you say, Simon? Sorry, two and a half. Two and a half. What are you saying, Zara? One lonely Christmas star on top of the tree. It only takes one. To yeah. f- you only have to follow the one star. Yeah. You don't have to follow several of them. So you're just given the one uh, for Kate Rusby and Light Years. Dove Cameron, Alchemical Volume 1 and Peter Gabriel. I think they know the, we know the album that the two lads liked best. Uh, uh, Simon Marr and Zara Hederman with me in studio on this Friday evening. And that is our lot for this Friday and this week. Now, Fitzmaurice researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckless was on sound the 
this evening and the programme was produced by Keshi. Talk to you Monday night at 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news.